0: Now we're continuing reading, uh, Romans 3, and we pick up at verse 21. Paul has already said that because through the law comes the knowledge of sin, by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in God's sight. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he God of the Jews only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, those of you who are blessed to be on WhatsApp will have got a message from me uh, yesterday evening with a lovely picture of Martin Luther and uh, one of his many quotes, and on the bottom of it reminding you to set back your clocks one hour. Only one hour, not 500 years, just uh, one hour. And that was sort of only slightly tongue-in-cheek because sometimes when you speak of the Reformation, people think, well, that was great that all that stuff happened 500 years ago. And yet as we look at the heart of the Reformation, what we see is we see something that's of eternal significance because it's dealing with God as God is and always will be, and human beings as humans are and sadly would remain if it were not for the wonderful grace of God. Why celebrate the Reformation? Because it's nothing less than the recovery of the wonder of the gospel itself. Why celebrate that? Why is the gospel and justification by faith alone so wonderfully good news? Why is it worth celebrating? Well, it is the gospel that Paul reminds us is God's power for salvation. One of his favorite themes that he continues here for everyone, Jew and Gentile. Why is it so universally wonderful and so universally needed? Because it meets real human beings where they are, not where they would think they are or where they should be, but where and as they are. It enables them to face up to who they are and shows them a God who graciously and powerfully is lovingly determined not to leave them where they are. All the world needs the gospel. The spiritually insensitive pagan Gentile of Paul's day and your pagan neighbors and friends and family too. And the self-righteous Jew of Paul's day and the self-righteous everybody of our own day. So in this chapter here, in Romans 3, Paul answers many of the questions that his Jewish listeners in particular were asking the religious people, if you like. He then goes on to show our universal and desperate need and God's gracious supply. And as he does so, if you look carefully, you'll see, even in just this chapter, all the five solas of the Reformation. We might see in the Sunday school if, how many of them you've picked up. All are equally needy. Look at verse nine. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. So Paul now begins to drive home the implications of these arguments he's been developing over the past two chapters. Jews and Gentiles have one thing alike. They're human beings. And as human beings, they're sinners. So at a fundamental, substantial level, there is no difference. All need this gospel, which alone is God's power for salvation. And he's going to back up this assertion through Scripture alone. He quotes selection of Scriptures from Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36, which, by the way, Kevin quoted earlier on. I'm sure you picked that up already. And he does that in this first section, really from verse 10 through to verse 18. And Paul, if you like, drags the mirror of God's word and and drags us by the scruff of the neck and brings the two together and says, have a good look. I don't care what you think you are, what you were told you are, what opera thinks you are. (laughs) This is who you are in God's word. He gives a picture of humanity that we rarely have come to terms with elsewhere. And note as as he goes through uh, this short section, which he he dips into so many of these Old Testament scriptures, the the universality of what he's saying, how, how the terms like all and none keep surfacing. First of all, he says, we all fail to measure up to God's righteous requirements. There is none righteous, no, not one. Every door is slammed in the face of our pretensions and self-righteousness and patting ourselves on the back and feeling, well, that's okay for everyone else, but I don't need it. Yes, you do, he says. Secondly, he says, we all have no true understanding of God or right attitude towards him, nor do we want it. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And the respect that God as creator and judge deserves and requires is totally absent. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's kind of getting uncomfortable looking into this mirror, isn't it? (laughs) Like, you know, waking up after a particularly rough night and you look in the mirror. You kind of want to look away, don't you? But he forces us to continue to look. Thirdly, we've all actively turned from God and all his ways. They have all turned aside. Almost the same language that we see in Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have turned away. Everyone to his own way. And it's not just individual, collectively as a society, we, we reinforce our sins and we, we create an environment where sin is easy, where sin is not identified or, or, or called sin. They have together become unprofitable. It's not just a, an individual thing. Of course, it is that. It's primarily that, but it's also a social thing. And if you think that that's not true, just grab your neighbor, tap them on the shoulder, say, I want to explain why you're a sinner. <laughs> Then stand well back. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that's necessarily the best way to start an evangelistic approach, but we have constructed a society, and we always have, where we are the center, and God and who He is, and His glory and His requirements are peripheral at best, unacknowledged at worst. And regardless of how we measure goodness, as far as God is concerned, there are no good people according to his standard. And you've probably heard this argument. Maybe you've used it yourself before you are a Christian. Well, what about Mrs. So-and-so, she's so good. Surely she doesn't need to, to repent and, and come and, and believe in Jesus alone for salvation. Well, Mrs. So-and-so is probably very good compared to you, and she certainly is good compared to me, but then you or I are not the standard. We are image bearers of God himself. That's the standard. When Adam and Eve were constructed, of course they weren't gods. Satan tried to attempt to become gods. They couldn't. But there was no moral difference between Adam and Eve and God. They were as perfect in their character as God himself was. They weren't infinitely. But as, as human beings, they were, there was no fault in them until they sinned. Paul says that's not the case now. And he gives an example then in the last section of how we use speech and how destructive our speech is. You know, speech is the, the key reflection of, of who we are. You know, we can put on, you know, uh, you know lovely clothes and, and, you know, make ourselves look and smile. But very often, if you listen to somebody, their speech betrays who they really are and it betrays both the depth and universality of sin. It's unholy and poisonous. It, it traps others into sin. It's a catalogue of, of, of awfulness there, isn't it? Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, and so on, and so on, and so on. And there are awful results from this. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Not having peace with God, and God's Wisdom and, and his governing our relationships. From Genesis 4, what do we see? There are massive consequences for that, starting, not, ex, not exclusively including, but starting with murder. The result is that man's path is away from God and it's marked out with personal, family, and societal misery. So where does the law come in? Where does the Decalogue or or, or the, the two great commandments that Jesus so wonderfully summarizes it? Well, Paul says in verses 19 and 20 that God has given us his law to confront us with the reality of who we are. As I said, it's like being dragged in front of this mirror and forced to look in because you know, until we look into that mirror, we keep fooling ourselves that, well, there's not really any change needed. Or if there is, it's kind of minimal. It's, it's around the edges of who I am. It's not really who I am that needs to change. Have a look in this mirror, Paul says. Keep looking. I'm not going to give you any respite until the law does its work. By the way, if you read the the story of Martin Luther, that was where he really struggled because he took God's law seriously. The fear of God was before his eyes and he knew as an Augustinian Augustinian priest and a monk and a teacher of theology, he was totally guilty before God and none of these things that he was trying to do to please God could reconcile him to God. And he he poured over God's word as he was teaching it to others, it was teaching him too. He, He read and taught through the Psalms and Romans and again and again, what kept jumping out of him was the righteous requirements of God. What does Paul say here in Romans three nineteen and 20? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Going back to my illustration of the mirror, what Paul is saying is it forces us to look into that mirror and every time we say, but, 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 it shuts that mouth. There are no buts, there are no excuses, there are no what ifs and maybes and but what about so and so. It's you that's looking at you in that mirror. The mirror that is, is God's word, the mirror that is telling us what God is like and that we as image bearers what we should be like. That's good, that's painful, that's excruciating, that's necessary. But believe it or not, that's not enough. (laughs) Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Back to the mirror again. I'm not letting you go from this mirror this morning. (laughs) You look at the mirror You're sweaty and dirty. Your hair is going in every direction that you can imagine. And you keep looking at it. The more you look, the more you see how awful you are. Now you can look at that mirror forever. Do you know what that mirror is not going to do? It's not going to straighten one hair in your head. It's not going to wipe one piece of sweat off your body. but it's going to tell you that that's what needs to happen. The law is not designed to make us right. The law is designed to show us how wrong we are so that we will be driven to the only source of what is right. God has given us his law as a picture of what he can reasonably require of us if we are to, quote, be perfect as he is perfect, This is, again, what Luther struggled with as you read his story. He took seriously the fact that as an image-bearer of God, he should be like what God is like. And, of course, in doing so, the law shows us how far short we are of measuring up. So the role of the law is to demolish self-righteousness In a world of sinners who hide behind self-righteousness rather than face up to their sins, the law blows that that wall apart. So they were left naked and trembling before God. It's not given as a means to try and achieve self-justification. and This is where the the medieval church had veered so far away from the, the biblical roots that it had inherited from the time of the Apostles. There were a multitude of ways that you could try and make yourself right before God. And Luther had pretty much tried them all over and over and over again. But as he came back to the mirror, the filth was still there and nothing would shift it. The problem is that the law is not given as a way of trying to make us right. It's given to shut us up every time we say, but I am right. Or at least I'm not too bad. Every time we open our mouth and try to wriggle out of our failure, to excuse it, to relativize it, to favorably compare ourselves with others, it's God's law that quietly but firmly puts his finger on our lips. and says, no, no. No, no excuses, not for me, not for you, not for anyone. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And light broke on Luther's soul just as it had in Augustine over a thousand years before this light from heaven through God's Word. That's the good news, isn't it? In the good news of the gospel, God reaches us apart from the law, yet in a just, righteous, and lawful way. This is the the crescendo of, 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 of Paul's argument that that vindicates the righteousness of God that he's going to give us in this last section of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Sinners can never come to God through the law. The law they've already broken. So God makes a way that deals with our unrighteousness while preserving his own infinite, eternal, perfect integrity. There is a way, only one way, and God has been preparing people for this in the law and the prophets throughout, his, throughout Revelation from the beginning of the world. What is this way? It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, look at the universal words here, to all and on all who believe. The way that God has made, and only God has made, and only God would dare conceive of it, perfectly meets both his righteous requirements and our sinful inability and undeservedness. Because that way is Jesus. That way is him who uniquely in all the universe is both God and man. Who brings together in his person God and man who has lived as the God-man on behalf of His people. Living the righteous life that we should have lived. And then dying as though He were as unrighteous as we are. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Christ died the righteous in the place of the unrighteous to bring us to God. And praise God, that's exactly what He has done. Who He is, and what he has done are both acceptable to God and acceptable to God for us. And they're accessible to us. Jesus has done all that God has required from me. I simply hand myself over to him. Luther said, when, when this truth broke on me, he said, I felt I had gone through the very gates of paradise and had been born again. Well, he had been <laughs> For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is he's on full steam now, isn't he? Just as all, both the Jew and the rest of the world, were all in desperate need. So now all that is required to meet all that need is completely and freely available in God's all, Jesus. How so? Well, he says in verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. When we look into the the mirror of God's law, we not just see that we are sinners through and through, but we also see that that sin must and will be condemned by a just God. And that's the only thing that can propitiate, can turn away his wrath, is to punish sin. But now God has set forth Jesus as propitiation by his blood. And we simply entrust ourselves to him through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This way of salvation is from God, from first to last, in Christ. How so? It's God who gave Jesus to die in my place. God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. He canceled completely and forever my liability to his just punishment. And Jesus was, is, and ever will be my propitiation before the eyes of a just God. And that propitiation, that way of turning away his wrath, I receive as a gift. And it's through faith, through faith only, God made the propitiation through Jesus' death. And because Jesus was punished, fully, completely, with all the, the infinitude of God's eternal wrath against sin, I don't have to be and won't be punished as well. I simply trust myself to him. And here's where, where faith and, and, and grace are perfectly matched. It is by faith because it's of grace. Faith brings nothing to the relationship except me and my need and my unworthiness. God brings everything to the relationship in his grace. By giving Jesus to die in our place, God has openly shown by doing this that all the requirements of the law, his law, have been met. The lawbreakers are saved and the law is satisfied by Jesus' perfect life and sin-bearing death. This arrangement is legally and eternally watertight. God wants to demonstrate this fact to us, where he shows both his love for us as sinners and his hatred for sin. Both are perfectly expressed and reconciled at Calvary. And so he encourages us then to come boldly and freely to him in a totally different relationship now, as children to a loving father, rather than to hold back in cringing guilty fear as criminals would from a just but punishing judge. And so last but not not least, this good news, this good news that was recaptured, rephrased in the, the Reformation, transforms us in 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 two vital ways it both humbles us there's no room for boasting as we'll see but it also totally frees us it liberates us and god alone gets the glory where is boasting then paul asks in verse 28 it's excluded by what law of works no but by the law of faith Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. How can you boast of that to which you've contributed nothing except your inability and undeservedness? (laughs) There's not really a, a square millimeter of boasting capacity there, is there? And secondly, we cannot boast of who we are because whoever we are, we receive salvation as a gift. Is he God of the Jews only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised or the Jews by faith and the uncircumcised or the Gentiles through faith. So all boasting is excluded. God alone is glorified. But it's also liberating, isn't it? If this is how God brings sinners to himself, and it is, then sinners can freely come. And having freely come, they can freely stay. And having freely come, they can stay forever. Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will never turn them away. We can't fear anymore. Perfect love has cast out fear. God's law, which we broke, is completely fulfilled. God hasn't ignored it. He's dealt with it. He's dealt with it. Not me. Not me and him. Not mostly him and partly me. But he's dealt with it. In Jesus, for us, perfectly and forever. And so I come to God now, not sneaking around a law that he's ignoring, but through the fulfilling of the law on my behalf, And that's liberating, isn't it? Because if the law has been fulfilled on my behalf, the law can never be cast up against me again. Do we make the law void through faith? Is that what we're saying, Paul says? No, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So I can look at God's law now and say, it condemns me no more, but it does encourage me to walk with Jesus, to become more like Jesus in gratitude to him. We give Mr. Spurgeon the last word. You've read this just over a little a month ago if you were doing his morning and evening. In September the 25th, musing on this passage of Scripture that God is both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus, he concludes his devotion of this way. Therefore, Jesus, having taken the place of the believer, having rendered a full equivalent to divine wrath for all that his people ought to have suffered as the result of sin, the believer can shout with glorious triumph Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Not God, for he is justified. Not Christ, for he has died. Yes, rather, has also risen again. And he's quoting that, of course, from, from Romans 8. And Spurgeon concludes this way. My hope does not live because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Jesus died. My faith does not rest on what I am, or shall be, or feel, or know, But in what Christ is, in what He has done, in what He is now doing for me. And here he paraphrases effectively what Paul was saying Do we make the law void through faith? On the lion of justice, the fair maid of hope rides like a queen. These are great truths. These are eternal truths. These aren't just truths for 500 years ago. These are truths for 2022, 2023, and however 20s there will be, or 30s or 40s, until the Lord comes back. This is the great truth, recaptured, reproclaimed at the Reformation. And that's something to celebrate. Amen.